It's so good to be here with you on this Lord's Day. I invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians 3. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 14. As you're uh, turning there, just a little bit of maybe a reason why we're jumping into Galatians chapter 3. As you know, uh, the Bible from beginning to end is one giant story. You know, there's 66 books, 40 different authors, uh, three different languages written on three different continents over the course of about 1,500 years, but inspired all by the one Holy Spirit. And it's one giant story about what went wrong with the world, what went wrong with us, and what God has done to make it all right, to make us right, and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one giant story with amazing divine unity. There's like 64,000 different cross-references in the Bible. Lots of allusions, typology. Um, The New Testament actually quotes the Old Testament around 250 times. And one of those verses the New Testament uses is actually the last verse that George preached on last week, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. Uses it three times, and for these next couple of times where George doesn't preach, there's me or, or Todd up here, we'll be preaching on passages where that's found in the New Testament. So in a couple of weeks, uh, Todd will be preaching on Hebrews 10, and we're preaching on Galatians 3 this morning. Verse 11, the righteous shall live by faith. Hopefully we'll see how Paul uses this in his greater argument in chapter 3, which will be our focus. So what's happening in Galatians 3? Galatians can be um, divided in about three different parts. The first part is Paul explains the gospel. This culminates in chapter 2, verse 16. The second part is that Paul defends the gospel. As uh, Will mentioned earlier, false teachers, which we call Judaizers, have come to the church and they started convincing uh, young Christians, Christians in general, that Jesus was not enough to inherit those Abrahamic promises. They had to have Jesus, but do all these extra things in order to achieve that. And so Paul defends the essence of the gospel. Lastly, he shows us how to live out the gospel. We live out the gospel by faith, walking in step with the spirit. Our passage falls in that middle part where Paul defends the gospel. He does quote Habakkuk 2.4, but he also quotes Deuteronomy twice and also Leviticus to make his argument. And at the end of the day, this is what we have in verses 10 through 14. One of the most compact statements in scripture where the Bible tells us exactly what God has done to make us right in his son. This is a passage about gospel freedom, the freedom that only the cross of Jesus Christ can bring. So let's read it together. Starting in verse 10, and we'll read through verse 14. Hear the word of God. Paul writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, 
but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have gathered us here, that you have gotten us out of our beds, that you've given breath to our lungs, and that you have providentially led us here to your place where we might delight in your presence and know you more and more. We pray that by your spirit, you would open up our eyes, that you would ready our hearts, that we truly might see the beauty and the power and the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would forever be changed. Speak to us, O Lord, for your servants listen. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, Prior to, um, well, prior to his conversion experience, in October, I think year 1517, and you've, I'm sure, have heard this story before. Reformer Martin Luther was just a miserable man. Um, he had a tormented soul. Um, he actually did not like God that much. He worked in the church, but he didn't like God. He was angry at God. Why? Because everything that he did, no matter what he did, and he was excellently, excellent at all the churchy stuff, but no matter how hard he tried, He could never feel like he could come out from under the feeling of God's anger and God's wrath. Daily, he felt doomed, right? Much later in life, he looked back on that part of his life, and and this is what he said. He said, I was a monk without reproach. Meant that no one lived the good moral life like he did. He did church better than anybody. Yet I knew that I was a sinner. And therefore, I had a deeply disturbed conscience. And so for day and night, he just, he just poured over the scriptures. Remember, he was a Bible teacher, a Sunday school teacher, a pastor. But he just, day and night, he poured over the scriptures over and over and over again until his eyes came to rest on this verse, the righteous shall live by faith. He was looking to Romans 1 at the time. But when his eyes fell on that phrase, on that verse, his eyes never left. Because in that moment, with the help of the spirit, he came to realize and understand the freedom of the gospel. And he said in that moment, it felt like I was reborn, that I just bust on through the doors into paradise. He was free. Do you know what Luther came to to realize in that moment? It's really what, what Paul teaches on in this passage. In this passage, God comes to each of us and he says to us something that completely defies what our expectations would have been. To put it just in today's term, this is what God says to you. Leave your resumes at home. I don't want them. I don't need them. In fact, I will not let you smuggle your contribution into anything my son has already done for you. And to what I say is most deeply true of you. It's all by grace. And church family, (laughs) I need to be reminded of that this morning. And I'm sure you need to be reminded of too, because we are a lot like the Galatians. This letter, this was not an evangelistic letter. This wasn't sent to non-believers. This was sent to, to Christians, to the church. And we can be just like them. People who Paul says in verse one and two had entered the kingdom through faith. 
But somewhere along the line, they started thinking, and yes, it was because of the false teachers, but this is a human condition problem. Somewhere along the line, they started thinking that the Christian life was up to them. They quit observing the law, which is good, and they started relying on the law, which is slavery. And I think we can be like that. I mean, how many of us just wake up in the morning sometimes and we get, our, we get our metaphorical briefcase, right? And we put our spiritual resume in it and we march right in into the, the cosmic courtroom of God's approval and we pull out our little piece of paper and say, God, this is why you should love me today. In fact, actually, I think that's wrong. I think the opposite is true. We go into that courtroom and we pull out a little sheet of paper and we look at it and get depressed like Martin Luther because we know that we don't have an A-plus report card. We don't measure up and we start panicking and we start sweating blood and say, what can I do? And so we start laboring to either earn or maintain our father's affection. And when we do that, it really does feel like we're held captive in a dungeon, Now, some of us might be saying, I don't do that at all. (laughs) I am resting confidently in the gospel. And I really hope you are. But just think about, just think about how sometimes you view yourself. Or how sometimes you worry about how other people might view you. How many of us wake up in the morning and we start shadow boxing that perfect version of whoever it is that we want to be. And we get anxious and depressed when we just don't match up. How many of us look at Instagram and things of that nature and think to ourselves, man, I am such a loser that I'm not him, that I'm not her, that I'm not in that friend group. How many of us have our self-esteem rise and fall based off what our annual review says at work? How many of us say things like this? You know, I know that God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. You ever said that before? All of those are examples of inward self-reproach. That's a shadow of what we actually think God thinks about us. Because truly, if we were resting in gospel freedom, we wouldn't give, we wouldn't give any care or thought at all about what other people said about us or even what we said about us. Every single person, all of us, even Christians, like the Galatians, struggle with works righteousness. And when we do, it really does feel like we're being held captive, like we're doomed. That's why I love passages like this. But one of my favorite passages in the New Testament is actually Luke chapter 4, Jesus' inaugural sermon as he begins his ministry. He quotes Isaiah 61. And he's in church, he's in the synagogue, and he tells the Christians, hey, I'm the Messiah, or he tells the, the Jewish people there, he says, I'm the Messiah that you have been waiting for. And one of the things that I've come to do is to proclaim liberty to the captives, to free those who are held in prison. And brothers and sisters, isn't it true that we know what it feels like to be captive, to be held captive to our sin, to be held captive to our guilt and to our shame and those voices of condemnation in our heads that will not shut up. And Jesus comes to us and says, I I am delivering you from that. In fact, if you are in Christ, if you believe on him, you have already been delivered. You've already been set free. And in this passage, Paul comes to us. And he's he's going to remind us of this. 
Because even as Christians, we have a tendency to forget it. And so to remind us of this unbelievable gospel freedom that we have in him, he takes us back to the cross. And he says, burn your resumes, throw it away, quit scorekeeping, and cling to the cross. And there's three things that he says about the cross in regards to our gospel freedom. We're going to look at, look at them in order. The first thing that he talks about is the necessity of the cross. We see this in verses 10 through 12. This is an implied point. What he is showing us in these three verses is basically the utter insanity, the foolishness of being self-reliant, of, of relying on our spiritual resumes. That's what his point is in verses 10 through 12. Now, before we see him make this point, uh, Paul brings up two major themes in this passage that I think would be important for us to spend a little bit of time on. First, if you look at verse 11, in that verse, Paul points out uh, from the Bible's point of view, which is really the main point of view, right? But from the Bible's point of view, what the most important thing in life is. It talks about what you and I most desperately need, what everybody really needs, whether if they know it or not, and it's this, to be justified before God. To be made right with God. Every single person needs that, wants that, to be able to walk before him. Now that phrase, and just this whole concept, is extremely important in the Bible. What does it mean to be right with God, to walk before him? Well, it means, well, I guess it means to be fully known and fully accepted at the same time. Now, ever since the garden, we've, we've had issue with that. We've been in a pickle because in the garden, Genesis three, when Adam led us all into sin, not one person has truly wanted to be known, right? Because we know how now, how sinful we are, how guilty we are. And we're just scared to death to be truly known by each other. You know, if, if you guys know who I was and what I thought about you, you would run for the hills and we're worried about that even more so with God. Right? And so we just dive into a bunch of bushes like Adam and Eve did. But at the same time, we also really want to be known by God. Because we know how incredible it would be to be completely transparent, to be fully known and fully accepted and therefore fully loved. To walk before him and to be with him without fear. And if we had that, we certainly wouldn't be afraid of each other. But, but how delightful would it be to walk before God and to be justified before God? That's the main thing. Now, the other thing that he brings up is this idea of being cursed. It's all over the verses, this, this whole idea of being cursed. Now, what is that? That's not common vernacular in our day-to-day conversations, I don't think. I mean, whenever I hear it, I usually have images of like Halloween that pop up. My son just absolutely loves Scooby-Doo and Shaggy gets like cursed in every episode. I mean, that's what I normally I think of, but that's not what Paul is talking about, nor is it the four-letter variety. Usually when we hear that word cursed, when the Bible speaks of being cursed, it's in the context of covenant. And that's what Paul is is doing here. He is saying that the perfect and holy law of God has curses attached to it. Okay, now this is important for us because remember, this has everything to do with that covenant relationship that, that we want down deep in our bones and heart and soul to be in with the God of the cosmos. Right, But in this holy law of God, there's, there's curses attached to it. So if you go back into Deuteronomy, 
You know, Paul quotes, again, Leviticus and Habakkuk, but he quotes Deuteronomy twice. If you go back to Deuteronomy, that's the fifth book of the, the Pentateuch, the fifth book of Moses, the fifth book of the law. If you read through that, there's just law after law after law after law after law. There's laws everywhere. Then you get to chapter 27, and what's in chapter 27? There's a list of curses. Then in chapter 28, what's in chapter 28? There's, there's a list of blessings. Now, why is that important? It's important because it tells us the law of God is never abstract. It's always covenantal. It's always relational, which means that God doesn't give us his law merely to be obeyed. We are certainly to obey it. But really what it is, it's stipulation for intimacy, for relationship with him. That if you uphold my law, there's going to be a relationship. There's going to be warmth and there's going to be embrace. But if you don't, but if you don't, you're cut off. You, you are cursed. That's what it means to be cursed, to be cut off from God. Right? So, so in God's economy, at the heart of every law is relationship, and at the heart of every relationship is law. Now think about that. To our 21st century enlightened ears, <laughs> that doesn't sound right, right? You can't put laws on love. I mean, love is free. Lo- love, is, uh, love is blind. Love is... Never having to say you're sorry. You know, we, we, we've heard foolish things like that, but, but that just doesn't seem very loving to throw laws in there, right? Well, let's just think about this in our human context. Okay, last night I had the wonderful privilege to preside over a wedding. It was so much fun. It was beautiful. The music was great. These fla- I mean, look at those flowers. It's like Narnia up here. Um, we love going to weddings, right? Say that you go to a wedding and the part where the pastor you know, ask the, the bride-to-be and the groom-to-be to take their vows. And we've heard that. Say the pastor says, Billy, do you take this woman to be your wedded wife? Do you promise to love her and comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health? Do you promise to keep yourself only unto her as long as you both shall live? And say Billy said, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> Thanks again. Th- Thanks, though. What do you think would happen if Billy said that, other than the fact that the father of the bride would be arrested for the assault that was just committed? You know? With tears in her eyes, she would say, okay, well, this relationship's off. And if she's too embarrassed to say that, which I would be, the pastor would say, this relationship's off. Why? Because you can't be in a covenant relationship and live any way which way you want. That's not loving. That's not a covenant. In the covenant, you commit yourself to that other person. That doesn't mean you're perfect in, in this life, but, but you commit yourself to that other person. You live in a way that will honor them. You, 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 you take seriously what that other person takes seriously. And if you do, well, there is intimacy. There is a relationship. There is warmth. There is an embrace. But if you refuse to live in such a way, well, there's no relationship. You're cut off. You're cursed. Now, you could say, okay, well, I'm just not going to be in a relationship with that person. (laughs) She's demanding entirely too much. Well, I guess in selfishness, you could say that, but you cannot say that to God and get away with it. Because not to be in a relationship with God, friends, is death. Spiritual death. Okay, so what is Paul talking about? There's these two major themes. One, 
to be right with God, to be right relationship with him. And then there's this concept of being cursed, right? So what is Paul's major argument? What's his gospel logic in verses 10 through 12? I think it's this one, the the thing that we most need in this life, what we desperately need, whether we know it or not, is to be made right with God, because that is everything. That means to have life. That means to have life eternal, to have life abundant. It's everything. To not be in relationship with God is the opposite. It's cursed. It's to be spiritually dead. And Paul says we actually come into this world that way in Ephesians 2. We were born sinners. We were born separated from God. Then we come to Galatians chapter 3. And in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, however, if you're also trying to uh, to rely on the law... To make yourself right with God, you remain cursed. You're still cursed. Not because there's something wrong with the law. The law is perfect. The law was given to us so that we might live a life that goes well with us. That, that's abundant. That's fruitful. That lives a, that, that's pleasing to the Lord. But if we are relying upon it for life, that is life with a capital L, eternal life, we are cursed. Why? Well, this is why Paul quotes Deuteronomy and Leviticus. This is his argument. If you're going to try to rely on the law to justify yourself, you have to keep the whole thing. You can't just keep the easy parts like being circumcised Galatians. You have to do all of it. You have to keep the whole thing perfectly. And guess what? You're not perfect. And you're not perfect second presers. And I know that I'm not perfect. Why? Because we're all sinful before a just and holy God. So here's Paul's exegetical argument in verses 10 through 12. It is absolute insanity to rely on your own good works to make yourself right with God. It's impossible. And here's his pastoral point. It's kind of like Bob Newhart. You ever watch Bob Newhart? Am I the only one that watches Bob Newhart? (laughs) He's, He's talking to people that he's counseling and sometimes he just says, please stop it. That's what he says. Just stop it. And that's what Paul is saying here. Stop it. Stop relying on yourself. Right? Because the law was never meant to justify you. That's why he quotes Habakkuk 2.4. That's why he points to Abraham as the model for what it means to live by faith in verses 1 through 9. This isn't a new thing Paul is saying. This is an ancient gospel. It's always been this way. We were always justified by faith. So if Paul was here this morning, this is how he would address this room, speaking to two groups of people. There's only two groups of people in this room. If you are not yet a Christian, and you're still thinking through this Christian faith and trying to make heads and tails of Jesus, this is what he says to you. No matter how good you are, you cannot earn your way into a life of eternal blessing with God. You might be really good. You might be great. You might be morally superior to all the other Christians in this room, even the pastors. But it's not enough. You'll never have an A-plus card on your own. You need something else. You need the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian in this room and and you have entered into the kingdom through faith, just like the Galatians, but, but say that you're just spiritually zapped. 
and you feel empty and you feel like you're pushing a boulder up a hill and you're not getting anywhere. In fact, you're getting worse. You're going backwards. And when you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and the first thing that you feel is shame. And the first thing that you say to yourself in your head is, why are you such a loser? Why are you such a failure? And maybe your resentment is building towards God. Perhaps it's because you've walked back into the dungeons and you've forgotten that Jesus Christ has opened that door for you. That's what Paul is saying. He is saying, friends, burn your spiritual resumes. You don't need them. They're not going to help you anyway. Quit scorekeeping and remember the necessity of the cross of Jesus Christ. Which leads us to our second point. What happened at the cross of Jesus Christ? We see this in verse 13. It's amazing. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Friends, this is one of the clearest messages of what the gospel is, of gospel freedom. And it's really how Jesus fulfills what he promised to do in Luke chapter 4, proclaiming liberty to the captives and freeing us from the dungeons. How does he do it? What happened at the cross? Well, Paul tells us, first off, Christ redeemed us. Now, you may have heard it before. That word redeem is an economic word usually used in the context of slavery back then. So what Paul is telling us, when you have faith in Jesus, he redeems you from the ultimate slavery. He buys you out of the ultimate slavery. He takes you out of prisons, out of dungeons, and he removes the curse from you. How? Paul says, by becoming a curse for us. Friends, that is the best language. That is the language of substitution. It's the language that changes lives. It's the very heart of the gospel. The language of substitution. So let's just think about what does it mean that Christ became a curse for us? Again, you have to go back in the Old Testament, places like Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy, it was in their mindset that That if you broke the law, if you were a covenant breaker and did things, say, for example, that you committed blasphemy, well, you'd be stoned to death, right? And rather than being buried normally, you'd be hung on a tree to show that you had broken the covenant, that you were cut off from God, that you were cursed. Okay, so here Paul is taking that image and that history and liking it to Jesus On a tree, on a cross. And when Paul says that, he is telling us that, listen, Jesus was hung on a cross, not merely because the Romans were sadistic killers, which of course they were, but he wanted to show his people and all of the world that he was taking on the curse for our sakes. Church, do you understand? He is our substitute and this means everything. So let's enumerate what actually happened on the cross. Well, first on the cross, he was punished, physically so. And I can't imagine the agony that he experienced for our sake, right? But that's not even half of it. Because remember, the whole concept of being cursed is relational. So in Keller's commentary on Galatians, his Bible study notes, which are so fabulous, he says, because of that, this is what that means. The worst pain that Jesus experienced on the cross was not the holes in his hands or the crown of thorns around his head 
or the holes in his feet. It was the hole in his heart where God used to be. And he goes on to make this point too, which I find fascinating and is so true. The pain of loss in relationship, it, it depends entirely upon the level of that relationship. So if you lose an acquaintance, you, you're going to be sad, right? But not as sad as losing a friend. Worse still is losing a lifelong friend, a best friend, a spouse. That kind of pain is unbearable. It takes us forever just to be able to get out of bed in the mornings when we experience that level of loss. So just think about how painful it was for God the Son to lose God the Father. Think of that level of relationship. Before Adams were formed, before there was anything, there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit eternally being loved and eternally loving, face-to-face, gazing in each other's beauty and glorifying one another. Perfect harmony. So imagine the pain and the sorrow when Jesus on the cross quotes Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only place in the gospel that Jesus refers to his father merely as God. Why? Because Jesus was cut off in that moment. He experienced hell for us, a hell that was infinitely greater than any hell we might experience. Because again, the level of a relationship, this is God the Son and God the Father. He was cut off, brothers and sisters, so that you and I would never have to be. But that's not the most shocking point of verse 13. The most shocking point of verse 13, what John Stott says, actually embarrasses commentators They think to themselves, Paul could not possibly mean this. This is unspeakable. This is what Paul says. He does not say that Jesus was cursed for us. Friends, he says Jesus became the curse. Which is very similar to what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where where the Father made him to be sin. Not that, that he took on our sin, but that he was made to be sin. That he became the curse. What in the world does that mean? Well, it does not mean that Jesus actually became sinful. We know that's not true. He's perfect. He's the perfect son of God. So what does it mean? It means that in that moment, Jesus legally became sin. He legal, this is legal language that he legally became the curse of God. And what that means is the reason that was so is so that God could treat his son like we deserve so that he could treat us like Jesus deserves. That's what happened at the friends. Jesus does not come to us merely as a good teacher, which of course he was. He does not come to us as a model to emulate, which of course he, he, he has a model for us to follow, but that's, That's not how he comes to us. He comes to us as our substitute. He lived the life that you and I had to live to be in that relationship with the Father forever and ever. Jesus lived that life. He fulfilled the law. He obeyed the law. And he paid the penalty that we had to pay as lawbreakers. 
He was our substitute. He doesn't come to us as an example merely. He comes to us as our substitute. And friends, when you trust in him as your substitute, he gives you way more than just forgiveness. You know, sometimes we approach our relationship with him that way that, oh man, I get to be forgiven by God. That's amazing. But that's not enough, right? Because if we're just forgiven, that just puts us back to, to square zero. It's up to us now. The pressure's back on. What, what if we fall down again? We have to go back to resume building, but that's not what happened at the cross. At the cross, we get forgiveness and we get his righteousness, church. Imputed righteousness. He takes our record and he gives us his righteousness. And what that means is, is when we come into faith with him, the father looks at us and he views us and he counts us as a little Christ. And as a little Christ, we've been given this amazing relationship, the relationship that we need and want with the father, where we hear him say, in spite of what our record used to be and how lousy our resumes are now, we hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That is everything, everything, everything for sinners like us. Church, do you see the necessity of the cross and what happened at the cross, the gospel freedom? We're about to sing about it. Before the throne of God above, I have one strong and perfect plea. That my sinful soul is counted free. That God the just was pleased to look on him, his son, and pardon me. The works of the law cannot justify you. Your nice little record can't justify you. Your goodness, your being a Sunday school teacher, me being a pastor, us, whatever it is that we're trying to do to justify ourselves doesn't work. So quit trying to clean yourself up. Quit looking back on your life with deep regret saying, I wish I could have done that. I should have done that. Why didn't I do that? That's a waste of time. Go to Christ. Go to him. That's what Paul is. This is a, just please go experience the freedom that's available to you in Jesus. Go to Christ. The one who is cursed so that you might receive the blessing. And that's the last point. Listen to what Paul says. Jesus became the curse so that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might go to the Gentiles, which is us, by the way, unless you're a Messianic Jew, we're the Gentiles. So Jesus became a curse so that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So friends, at the cross, again, we receive more than forgiveness. We receive his righteousness, which means when we are converted, we are not put on probation. Okay, God isn't, God isn't, okay, you're forgiven. I'm just going to sit back on my throne and, and just see how this thing goes. You're on, that's not what's happening here. We have been made through faith full-fledged members, royal sons and daughters, and the one royal, eternal family of God forever and ever. Listen, I don't know what you got going on in your life and what you're trying, you know, to get and to get your hands around, whatever you're trying to achieve. I promise you, it will not hold a candle to the Abrahamic blessings mentioned here. 
These are the blessings that the Judaizers are trying to bar the Christians from. Hey guys, you can't get this unless you achieve that. Well, Paul, Paul just puts a torpedo in their argument. It has nothing to do with what you do, but it has everything to do with what he does. Now, what are those Abrahamic blessings? Well, I'm promising you right now that deliverance from the curse is just the beginning. It goes well beyond that. Because we are also in Jesus Christ, inheritors of a great name. An eternal name, his name. Our names are written in heaven in the Lord Jesus. We're inheritors of his glory, of a new city, new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. Paul tells us in Romans 8, we are heirs of God. We will inherit his presence and his relationship, that thing which we desperately need. We inherit that forever and ever. You have it now, but you will experience in toto and full in the time to come. And you are a co-heir of the Lord Jesus Christ where you will rule over all the new heavens and the new earth alongside the author and the perfecter of your faith, Jesus, our substitute. And all of this is guaranteed by the down payment of the Holy Spirit, which Paul says here, and all of that is by faith. All of it. Not just believing in God. Because even demons believe in God. But actually believing God and what he says about his son and about you. That in him there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That all who believe on the son have eternal life. And all that the son has set free, they are free indeed. It is all by faith, church. To put it another way. Football season's upon us. Some of you are saying, unfortunately. And um, as you know, many of you know, I'm a suffering Ole Miss fan. Not quite as suffering as the UT fans this morning, but still. Damon's a UT fan. I just had a, sorry, Damon. But I am a suffering Ole Miss fan. And, and one of the best things about being an Ole Miss fan, that the payoff is the Grove. It really is. If you've never been to the Grove, it is the world's greatest potluck. Can I get an amen for any of the Ole Miss fans in here? Jimmy. It's an amazing time. The, the, the Grove, it's incredible because everybody brings their best. And usually what it ends up being is like everybody brings the world's greatest fried chicken. The Grove is the place where chickens go to die, by the way. I mean, it's fried chicken. There's just mounds and mountains of fried. Even the, the store-bought stuff from the Chevron across the street is like manna to your lips. It's delicious. And everybody brings the sides, like candied bacon. Whew, candied bacon. Growing up, my family, we brought deviled eggs with a little paprika powdered on top, which is just amazing. I just love it. And uh, everybody brings their stuff and we get fat. And, you know, it doesn't really matter if Ole Miss wins a game or not because we've never lost a potluck in the Grove. It's, it's amazing if you haven't gone. Sometimes we approach our relationship with God as if it's a great potluck. And we say, Jesus, you bring your best stuff. And I'm going to bring my best stuff and we're going to have a feast. Paul says, don't you dare believe that lie from the pit of hell. The Christian life is not a potluck. It's a banquet. And Jesus is the host. And he will not let you snuggle in 
your snacks. He will not let you smuggle in your human contribution into what his son has done, into what he says is true of you. It's all by grace. The righteous shall live by faith. All you got to do is come. The table is set. Come hungry and feed on him in faith. Brothers and sisters, let us be like Martin Luther and keep on coming back to that truth over and over and over again that we might receive and live daily in the gospel freedom that Christ has won for us. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Father, your word says that we are sinful people, more sinful than we ever thought. But it also says that in Jesus, we are more loved than we ever dared to hope. Help us, Father, to believe what you say. Help us to believe the gospel. Seal it to our hearts. That for your glory and for our good, we might experience the freedom of the gospel and live to the glory of your name. It's in Jesus, our substitute's name we pray. Amen.